Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Maniac Mansion, a point-and-click adventure game developed and published by Lucasfilm Games for the Commodore 64 and Apple II computer systems in 1987, with various ports following. We will take a look at that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 47. I'm excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt, and we have a Discord server with the link in the show notes. Discord is probably the best way to get in touch with me and interact with the rest of the community that follows this podcast. We have tons of great discussions out there. It is a lot of fun. I should also mention that we do have a Patreon. That is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. Our second Patreon exclusive episode is coming out this upcoming Wednesday. So that would be August 16th. August 16th at midnight is when our next Patreon exclusive podcast is coming out. It is focused on a brief history of Doom, WADs, and mods with a focus on myhouse.wad, which is sweeping the internet in 2023. A brand new WAD that has basically come out and redefined the game, or at least is one of those experiences that everybody is talking about. So that should be a lot of fun. If anybody does want to join the Patreon, once again, it is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. I also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon members. These are patrons that are supporting this podcast at the Pantheon level. They are ISO, Rich Centerwald, and David Morton. Thank you guys, and thank you all who support the show either via Patreon or just by listening to the show on a regular basis. I truly do appreciate everybody that listens, and I hope you all get a little bit of goodness out of this show every week. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, its historical context. Where does it sit within the overall spectrum of video and computer game history? And then we go into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a star value or quantitative ranking, but we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should absolutely go out and play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good experiences. I still highly recommend them, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives or you have nostalgia for the game itself. You are pretty much guaranteed to have a good time. Highly recommended. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they are darn close and they are still really worthwhile experiences to play today. Just beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. They may have aged a little bit, may have had a couple of issues to begin with. You could still have a good time if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. Go for it. You may still have some fun, but I cannot recommend these games to the broader population. And then we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these titles today they have either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with with that out of the way we're going to start talking about the game of the day that is maniac mansion
Maniac Mansion is a point-and-click adventure game developed and published by Lucasfilm Games for the Commodore 64 and Apple II computer systems in 1987, with ports following to a number of other systems, including the Nintendo Entertainment System. Before we can talk about Maniac Mansion, we have to go back in time to talk about the people behind the title. And here, we really need to focus on two people, Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick. Now, I'd venture a guess and say that of those two names, one is probably just a bit more recognizable to adventure game aficionados than the other, and that would be Ron Gilbert, who over a span of decades would bring us some of the most memorable and well-designed adventure games of all time. Back in 1983, though, he was simply a college student with a penchant for programming and a desire to break into the computer game industry, which he actually ended up doing shortly after graduating from college. He joined the company HESWare to develop games for the Commodore 64 computer platform shortly after graduation. Gilbert, like many game designers and developers of the time, had always had a passion for video games, and Gilbert took his passion a bit further than many of them. Rather than simply admire games like Donkey Kong or Pac-Man, Gilbert would study those games, trying to figure out how developers of the time were able to achieve the various mechanics, graphics, and sounds that formed the foundations of the titles he loved. He would then take notes on how he thought the game could be created and then try to replicate it on his own computer, effectively learning how to program by reverse engineering the games that he admired. Upon getting his job at HESWare, he'd have an opportunity to begin making his own games, though unfortunately, none of his early works would ever be released on the market, and the company itself would go out of business in 1984. That, however, presented an opportunity, as Gilbert decided to pursue a job at a different video game development company, this time working for George Lucas's interactive entertainment division, Lucasfilm Games. After joining Lucasfilm Games in 1985, Gilbert's first role would involve porting various Lucasfilm Atari 800 games to the Commodore 64, which was meaningful, though not exactly exciting, work. All of that would change, though, when Gilbert met another individual working at Lucasfilm Games, an artist named Gary Winnick. Gary Winnick and Ron Gilbert ended up becoming friends fairly quickly, as they both had very similar senses of humor while also having similar tastes in games, movies, and television shows. As their friendship developed, the pair started talking about potentially working on a joint project together, something that would allow them to let their creativity loose. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that's great, but employees can't simply decide to work on a project independently. They've got to get some form of approval from their leadership. And generally speaking, you'd be right. The thing is, though, at the time, the management structure in Lucasfilm didn't really apply all that much oversight to a lot of the work that was being done by their employees, which was actually a good thing for people like Ron Gilbert, because that meant that they could be as creative as they wanted to be. It wasn't as though employees were working without any restrictions, and Winnick and Gilbert were, generally speaking, working under the direction of their management, but they were given a lot of creative freedom to pursue the projects that most interested them. So, Winnick and Gilbert started to talk together and come up with an idea and general concept for a game, deciding on a narrative structure that would be based heavily on B-movie kinds of tropes and cliches, while also including a mix of traditional horror elements like you might see in slasher kinds of films like Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th, combined with campy situations and over-the-top silly humor. More specifically, one of the major inspirations for the overall plot of the game that they were trying to develop was the film Creepshow, which featured a meteor that crashed to Earth and would go on to control the minds of individuals who came into contact with it. Anybody who's played Maniac Mansion probably recognizes that story setup, but we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. Interestingly, when Gilbert and Winnick began working on their game, they didn't realize they were going to create a point-and-click adventure game. That eventuality might seem obvious now, given how prolific both would become in the adventure game field. But remember, we're talking 1985. The adventure game genre was just starting to get some definition around it, and Gilbert and Winnick had never personally worked on an adventure title at this point in their careers. So really, Maniac Mansion could have ended up being just about anything. Action, puzzle, platformer, adventure, who knows? Gilbert and Winnick just couldn't decide what kind of game their concept would best align with. 
That indecision lasted until one fateful Christmas vacation, when Ron Gilbert had the opportunity to watch his cousin play a game, the classic Sierra Adventure title King's Quest. And that vacation gaming session would change everything. Now before we go on, we need to take a step back and talk about adventure games of the early 80s. Today, when we think about adventure titles, a lot of times we think about the point-and-click adventure games that were prevalent across the computer marketplace from the late 80s through the mid-90s. But back in the early 80s, adventure games didn't have graphics, and they didn't have mouse-driven interfaces. There were no point-and-click adventure titles because the concept of the computer mouse wasn't even pervasive across the industry yet. Instead, most adventure games were purely text, a kind of interactive fiction where you controlled the action by typing commands into a prompt on the screen, with the game interpreting your commands and then doing something, assuming that you picked a set of words that the computer could actually recognize. King's Quest, by contrast, was one of the originators of the graphic adventure game, meaning rather than simply seeing text on the screen, you could see an actual visual representation of the game world, along with characters and items. Now, the graphics were primitive, and the game was still controlled using a text parser interface. But regardless, King's Quest and its graphical stylings would represent a significant release in the adventure game genre. That's not to say that there weren't other adventure games dabbling with using graphics, but King's Quest was the one that put the technology on the map. And when Gilbert saw this revolutionary title, he was struck with inspiration. Maniac Mansion would become an adventure game. With that decision made, the design for the game started to be fleshed out, including initial ideas for the dialogue, story, puzzles, interface elements, and environments, most of which would begin by being sketched out on paper prior to ever making their way into a computer. In fact, Maniac Mansion began its life as a board game of sorts, with the mansion's rooms represented by pieces of paper with concept art, and items and characters being represented by makeshift board game pieces. The interesting thing here is that Gilbert and Winnick went well beyond the conceptual stage with this board game-like approach. They actually began designing the game using this very analog kind of method, even mapping out various events that would happen, how the characters in the game world would interact with each other and the game world itself, and various other plot points that could occur while playing the game. The pair spent so much time early on with these design sessions that Gilbert almost got fired from Lucasfilm due to the amount of time he appeared to be wasting, since at this point all the team had was effectively a bunch of paper artifacts. Not a single line of code had been written. It's kind of hard to imagine a gaming landscape where Ron Gilbert lost his job before his very first adventure game would be released, but that was a real possibility in the early stages of Maniac Mansion's development. Luckily for all of us, that didn't happen, and Gilbert remained at Lucasfilm to work on his and Winnick's game. As they were working on the title, a serendipitous event happened that would serve to inspire a lot of the game's design, as during development, the entire Lucasfilm games division was moved to a location at Skywalker Ranch, which is a real-world location where George Lucas would work on his various film and other media projects. The Lucasfilm Games Division would end up working in the Stable House, which sounds like it would be filled with horses, but in reality was a very well-appointed space where many games and movies would be conceptualized and created. While working at the Stable House, Gilbert and Winnick had plenty of opportunities to visit the main house of the compound, and many of the rooms in Skywalker Ranch would end up serving as inspiration for the rooms in Maniac Mansion. You know, I always find it interesting how games take inspiration from such a variety of possible sources. Who would have thought that Skywalker Ranch, George Lucas's compound, could serve as inspiration for a spooky mansion? Anyway, at this point, Gilbert and Winnick had a general concept. They had the beginnings of a design, at least on paper, and they had begun to draft an overarching narrative. The next step was turning their attention to the technical task of actually developing the game. And this is where the creation of the venerable script creation utility for Maniac Mansion, or SCUM, engine comes into the story. When Gilbert sat down to begin coding the title, he didn't actually set out to construct an extendable engine that would be used for nearly every LucasArts adventure title that would follow. Instead, Gilbert's focus was squarely on making Maniac Mansion itself, and to do that, he began by utilizing a skill set in which he personally had some expertise, that being assembly language. 
Now, for the benefit of those who may be unaware, let's dive just a little bit into computer science and some very high-level programming concepts. When you look at computer programming, the actual act of writing code can take many different forms. You may hear terms like object-oriented programming, assembly, compilers, machine code, and all sorts of other technical-sounding words. Assembly language in computer programming terms is a type of coding technique that allows developers to effectively control and access the actual hardware in a machine. In modern programming languages, you often write code using a combination of English, or whatever language is prevalent in your geographic region, keywords, mathematical equations, and a specific structured syntax. This high-level, so to speak, type of programming is considered to be readable by a human, since even though the code may be complex, it's written using actual recognizable language. Assembly language is different in that you're not making your code in a way that could be readable for a person. Your singular focus is making the code efficient for a computer to use, oftentimes accessing hardware and memory locations directly. There's no real middle layer when you're talking assembly language. You are interfacing directly with the computer itself. It's complex and not really understandable to a layperson, but it's also highly efficient and much faster for a machine to execute assembly code in comparison to other high-level programming languages like we referenced a minute or so ago, simply because it doesn't need to perform as many translations to get to true machine-usable code. Assembly, by the way, is also much more difficult to actually write, and it quickly became apparent to Ron Gilbert that assembly language was not going to work for a project this large. So he decided to create a separate scripting engine that would allow him to create the game much more easily, with his first idea being to create a scripting language similar to Lisp, which is a computer programming language often used in artificial intelligence processing. The thing with Lisp, though, is that it's not really conducive to broader game development outside of some very specific use cases, such as, like we just mentioned, artificial intelligence. As an example, Lisp would be really powerful for controlling character behaviors or performing mathematical calculations, but trying to make it easy to reference an object in the game world, like a door or a hamster? Lisp wasn't all that great at it, or at a minimum, it wasn't as easy to use to perform object-driven manipulations. So, Gilbert started yet again, throwing out the work he had performed on his Lisp-like language and instead decided to create an object-oriented tool similar to the mainstream computer programming language C. And it was at this point that he realized he was finally onto something. This latest iteration of his scripting language is what would eventually evolve into the script creation utility for Maniac Mansion, or SCUM, engine. SCUM was an object-oriented programming language, and its design provided a lot of different features that would make it a much simpler process to create Maniac Mansion. At this point, though, Gilbert was thinking towards the future, and rather than assume SCUM would only be used for a single game, he designed the engine to be extendable and portable to various platforms and systems. Meaning, even though SCUM literally had Maniac Mansion in its name, it was designed from the beginning to be a general adventure game engine, and anyone who knows about Lucasfilm and later LucasArts adventure games realizes that the Scum engine would eventually become synonymous with Lucas-style adventure games. With that concept in place, Gilbert began working with a programmer named Chip Morningstar to code all of the features of the engine, with Morningstar providing a lot of the foundational development, while Gilbert took that foundation and began building on top of it, creating the key pieces of functionality needed to make Maniac Mansion a reality, like specific object interactions and verb commands. Now, I need to mention, and I cannot overstate the importance or influence of the Scum engine on LucasArts and the broader adventure game market at large. While everything we're about to talk about is specific to Maniac Mansion, Recognize that these foundational elements are what form the framework for a huge number of adventure games across the entire industry. So let's talk about some of the design considerations given to Maniac Mansion that would, in turn, influence the industry. When Gilbert sat down to begin designing Maniac Mansion, he had been inspired by Sierra's King's Quest like we had mentioned earlier. While he was blown away by the fact that the adventure title utilized graphics to present players with a visual representation of the game world, he wasn't quite as enthused by the fact that navigating around that game world still required the use of text-driven inputs, and that those inputs were restricted by what the computer was coded to interpret. As an example, let's say you're standing in front of a door. 
A natural action by the player might be to type open door into the parser, which the game might probably should recognize. But let's say hypothetically that a player instead typed pull door. Well, there's no guarantee that the game would know that the verb pull could serve the same potential purpose as open, so the game might say something like, I can't understand what you want me to do. Gilbert had an ingenious idea for how to address this issue. Rather than using a text parser input that may or may not understand what the player typed in, what if, instead, the total list of commands available to the player would simply be presented on the screen at all times, and rather than typing commands, the player would click commands and objects in the world and items, in effect creating a command sentence of sorts that the game would then execute. By doing this, overall user input would be simplified, and the frustration associated with trying to execute a command that the computer couldn't understand would be minimized. This concept became the foundation for the interface of Scum Engine games, where a number of verbs would be visible on the screen, allowing players to point and click their way through the game world. Interestingly, this type of interface didn't exactly originate with Maniac Mansion, but instead was first attempted in the Lucasfilm adventure game Labyrinth, which was designed by David Fox. In Labyrinth, the player would be presented with what were known as verb and noun wheels, and the player could select which verb and noun from those wheels they would try to issue a command against. In this way, the player would be able to construct a simple sentence of sorts, thereby interacting with the game world without having to guess what possible commands the game might be expecting. The Scum engine took it a step further. By streamlining the process and identifying a small set of potential verbs or commands and integrating point-and-click gameplay to allow those commands to be issued against any hotspot or object in the game world. Interestingly, Gilbert himself has said that David Fox is actually the true mastermind behind the Scum Engine's interface, though it's unclear whether he said that simply because Labyrinth did the visual text interface thing first, or if Fox actually contributed specific development ideas to the creation of the Scum Engine. Beyond the interface... Gilbert also had some pretty strong ideas around overall adventure game design philosophy, and in particular, the almost nasty way Sierra Games reveled in killing the player for seemingly innocuous actions. As an example, in King's Quest, there is one scene where if you approach a rock from the wrong side, you will die. Now come on, that is simply unfair. The other aspect of Sierra Adventures that was fairly prevalent at the time was the concept of the dead end, where the player, through no real fault of their own, could progress through the game and potentially reach a point where they can't complete the game because they missed a critical item at some point in their quest. As an example of this one, let's say you begin a game in the dungeon of a castle, and on your cot lies a pillow. You might pick that pillow up, or you might not, and once you leave the dungeon, it's locked for the rest of the game with no way to return. So, let's say you didn't pick up the pillow and you reach the end of the game where you discover you need a feather to tickle a giant's nose in order to make him sneeze himself off the side of a cliff. If you had that pillow, you might be able to open it and retrieve a feather. If you didn't think to pick the pillow up, though, it's game over. You just played the whole game not knowing you couldn't complete the game because you failed to pick up an item on the very first screen of the game. So now you need to play the whole thing over again. Besides the fact that using a feather from a pillow to tickle a giant's nose and make him sneeze himself off a cliff is absolutely stellar puzzle design, and by the way, if any adventure game developers are listening, yes, I will work for you, the fact that you could effectively fail the game without even knowing it and lose hours of progress was something Gilbert and Winnick wanted to avoid. They thought the dead ends and the constant deaths were simply cruel and didn't belong in adventure games, so they took great strides to design Maniac Mansion in a way that would avoid unfair deaths and dead ends. At the same time, though, the design for Maniac Mansion was highly ambitious. Rather than simply control a single character the entirety of your playthrough, you would form a team of three characters, most with different specialized skills that would open up various paths through the game, leading to one of several different endings. If that sounds revolutionary, it's because it was. Adventure games were just not doing multiple-player-controlled characters in the mid-80s, and even throughout the adventure game genre's history, this kind of design is pretty unique. There are a few games that use the mechanic to great effect, like Maniac Mansion's sequel, Day of the Tentacle, but for the most part, adventure games are single-character affairs. Here's the thing with that multi-character design, though, at least as it relates to Maniac Mansion. 
the sheer ambition outweighed Gilberts and Winnick's ability to design an experience that wouldn't punish the player in some way throughout their quest. And despite their best efforts, there were numerous dead ends that could occur without the player's knowledge or any indication that there might have been a mistake. One of the biggest pitfalls from my perspective involves an envelope that, if not opened just the right way, could effectively render the game unwinnable using a certain subset of the game's characters. No spoilers here, but trust me, there are some pretty unfair dead ends prevalent throughout the game. There are also, interestingly, a variety of ways to die in the game, and because inventory isn't shared across characters, you run the very real risk of losing an entire character's inventory if you fail to avoid these deaths, which, once again, could very easily make your game unwinnable. Now, I will say that the deaths in Maniac Mansion only happen if you do some pretty boneheaded things, like handing a character's dead hamster back to them, or turning off the circuit breakers through a nearby nuclear reactor and cooling system, but there was at least one other death related to the game's early copy protection efforts that was simply unfair, especially because you might have not been thinking to save your progress that often, despite potentially owning a full copy of the game legally. And basically, the way that worked, just for anybody who was unaware... If you read or if you read the sign next to this copy protection thing, it would automatically go to trigger and put in a code. And I believe what would happen is the game would literally explode the mansion on you. Even if you had a full version of the game, it would kind of mess you up. So that to me is just patently unfair. But anyway. Oh, and by the way, before we move on. There is also at least one totally useless character, <coughs> Jeff, <coughs> who literally serves next to no purpose other than taking up space. That one felt a little mean to include because if you pick Jeff for your team, it's pretty much you're pretty much stuck going down a single path to victory because Dave, the main character, also doesn't have any really useful skills. So those two characters on one team means you really only have one character that can technically win the game. Suffice it to say, despite Gilbert's and Winnick's best efforts, Maniac Mansion would fall into the same pitfalls as many Sierra and other adventure games of the time. The only difference being, these dead ends were unintentional rather than a core aspect of the game's design. This style of design would continue to be further refined within Lucasfilm and eventually LucasArts, and later games would do away with deaths and dead ends entirely. But that just wouldn't be the case with Maniac Mansion it was simply too early for its ambitious design to be fully realized. Eventually, all of the pieces would come together after almost two years of development time, and Maniac Mansion would debut to the public at the 1987 Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, followed by a formal release on the Commodore 64 and Apple II computer platforms in October of 1987, and this represented the first time that Lucasfilm would self-publish a game that they developed. The game would later be ported to the Microsoft DOS computer platform in early 1988, followed by ports to the Amiga, Atari ST, and the NES and Famicom systems. Now, it's the NES and Famicom ports that I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about specifically. But first, we need to take a step back and talk about Maniac Mansion's style of humor. Having played the game several times across a variety of platforms, I can safely say that the humor and thematic elements in the game are pretty tame and certainly aren't anything I'd consider risque or mature, especially from a modern perspective. I mean, sure, you could microwave a hamster, and there might be a swimsuit calendar here and there throughout the mansion. And you might see a mummy posing in a sexually suggestive way, but really, there was nothing here that I'd imagine would offend anyone other than extreme conservatives. But we have to remember that Nintendo in the 80s and 90s was pretty much on a crusade to only support what they considered family-friendly content on their systems, with Nintendo of America being even more strict than their Japanese branch of the company. This oftentimes meant one of two things for game developers. Either you censored your game based on whatever Nintendo demanded, or your game didn't come out on a Nintendo system, which given the massive install base of consoles across the world would have been a major loss in potential revenue. Typically, when we talk about games on the NES and Famicom, the only differences between the titles is usually the language and perhaps the difficulty. Sometimes, very rarely, actual content like additional cutscenes or sounds might be present in one version of the title. But for the most part, a game on the Famicom is effectively the same game on the NES. With Maniac Mansion, though, 
entirely different experiences. The Famicom version was developed and published by Jalico and released in Japan in mid-1988, and it would feature a ton of changes from its computer counterpart. For one, all of the characters were redrawn for some reason, though that change isn't particularly egregious. What did change the feel of the game, though, was the shrinking of the mansion's rooms and the removal of scrolling from the game. In the original computer version of the title, when you'd navigate a hallway or some larger space, the game would smoothly scroll the screen to the left or right depending on where you were moving. In the Famicom version of the title, that scrolling was removed, with each section of an area being represented on a single screen. Moving to the side of an area would then cause the screen to go black, with the next scene popping up in a full-screen refresh kind of thing as opposed to a smoothly scrolling display. It's not the biggest deal in the world, but it does change the overall feel of the game, as does the fact that certain puzzles were changed from their original versions. Oh, and also, if you wanted to save your progress, well, good luck, because there was no battery backup. Instead, you had to input a password, but not just any password. This was a behemoth, with each password being over 100 characters long. Absolutely insane. The Nintendo Entertainment System version of Maniac Mansion, and the one that I played as a kid, was a much more faithful recreation of the original title, with similar graphics, scrolling screens, and almost all other gameplay elements in place, minus, of course, some of Nintendo's famous censorship. The primary reason for this faithful adaptation was that, rather than outsource the port to a separate company like what happened with the Famicom version, Lucasfilm itself would actually work on the port for the American version of Maniac Mansion, lending a degree of oversight and quality control that was missing from the Famicom release. Now, interestingly, the NES, and Famicom by extension, did have some advantages over computer systems of the time. We've talked about this before, but in general, computers in the 80s were primarily thought of as productivity machines, with gaming support being almost an afterthought. That's not to say that computers were incapable of playing games, and there are plenty of examples of awesome computer games from the 80s. But the fact is that home game consoles were built for playing games, so they often had an advantage in terms of graphics and sound processing. For Maniac Mansion in particular, it was the integration of music and sound into the experience that was probably the biggest innovation over its computer counterpart, as the original versions of the game didn't have any sort of musical background other than the theme music. On the NES, though, there were different themes for each character and situation in the game, and from my perspective, the addition of music was like adding a cherry on top of an already tasty sundae. Now, like I had mentioned briefly, Nintendo was pretty controlling when it came to content released for their systems, and they exercised that control pretty heavily when it came to Maniac Mansion. Douglas Crockford, who was a Lucasfilm employee at the time, and he was the one that directed the NES port, He actually wrote a fairly long article about the trials and tribulations of porting the title to the NES, which included such changes as being unable to use the word kill in the game, and the need to remove references to the scum engine entirely, because Nintendo thought that the word scum could potentially have a negative connotation. And specifically, it was the NES version of the scum engine, which Nintendo thought, well, having scum and NES next to each other could potentially make people think that the NES is considered scum and have some sort of negative connotation associated with it. Kind of absolutely ridiculous to think about, but that was the reasoning that that they gave. Um, So you had some restrictions where you couldn't use words like kill or even reference the scum engine, but in the first version of the game, you could still microwave a hamster to death, which is just weird to me. It's just Nintendo wasn't always the most consistent company, and I feel like it really depended on who you got to review your game that would determine what content you'd actually be able to get into the game. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the other different censorship changes that Nintendo made Lucasfilm go through, but if anyone is interested, look up that Douglas Crockford article. It was a really interesting read. Anyway, Maniac Mansion, like we mentioned, was originally released in late 1987, and pretty much every version of the title received universal critical acclaim, with many praising the overall design of the game, its puzzles, and the innovative multi-character framework that made up the core gameplay loop while encouraging replayability due to the variety of endings built into the experience. Some critics even went so far as comparing Maniac Mansion to films, as it was one of the early computer games to introduce cutscenes to help tell a story. 
We've seen some examples of cutscenes before that predate Maniac Mansion, such as Karataka, but Maniac Mansion's implementation was much more advanced. Players likewise grew to love the title, but it wasn't a commercial success overnight. In fact, Ron Gilbert claimed that the game ended up selling well below expectations, instead achieving more of a cult following years after its release. Lucasfilm continued to believe in the title despite its lower sales levels, and even went so far as to pitch an idea for a television sitcom based on the game, which ended up having a three-season run on both Canadian and American television. I personally have never seen the show, so I can't speak from experience, but the show was surprisingly well-received, with some magazines even naming it the best new show of the season. I was shocked by that reception. Though interestingly, the plot of the television show would be based in only the loosest way to the game, which in many ways is a bit of a shame. Still, it existed, and I find it amazing that it was as well-received as it was. As many are likely aware, Maniac Mansion would spawn a sequel, Day of the Tentacle, released in 1993. Day of the Tentacle is widely considered to be one of the best adventure games of all time, and would evolve nearly every aspect of the original title's framework and structure, polishing it to a near-perfect shine. In a great touch, Day of the Tentacle would also include the original full version of Maniac Mansion inside the game itself, playable on a computer located in one of the mansion's rooms. It's crazy to think that a title that was once considered cutting-edge in 1987 could be included as effectively filler content just six years later, but that's a testament to the pace of technological change during this time period of computer and video game development. To say Maniac Mansion has a lasting legacy would be an understatement. It gave us the Scum Engine, which would go on to provide the framework for nearly every LucasArts adventure title to follow. It would introduce the world to the adventure stylings of Ron Gilbert, and it would, in its own right, be considered by many to be one of the more influential adventure games in history. In fact, it was Maniac Mansion that introduced Lucasfilm and LucasArts to the world as a quality adventure game developer, a company that could go toe-to-toe with Sierra Online. It was simply a significant release in computer and video game history. Without Maniac Mansion the entire landscape of the adventure game genre might have never evolved to the heights it reached in the late 80s through the mid-90s. Even today, its influence continues to be felt across the industry, and while it's not quite as fondly remembered as many of LucasArts' classic adventures, there is no denying that Maniac Mansion deserves its spot as a well-respected early effort in the adventure game genre, and one that anyone with even a passing interest in adventure games should absolutely check out for themselves. going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Maniac Mansion today versus when it was released 35 plus years ago. So Maniac Mansion, like we were talking about, is a point-and-click adventure game using the Scum engine. So let's talk about exactly what that means. Unlike many adventure games of the time that used text-driven interfaces or text-parser-driven interfaces, Maniac Mansion would utilize a mouse-driven interface that would allow you to navigate around the game world, and as you would encounter various hotspots, locations, objects, or items, or even characters, you were able to use your mouse to select verb commands to create pseudo-sentences using those specific objects, items, or hotspots with those verbs. So as an example, one of the verbs might be turn on, or I guess verb phrase might be turn on. So if you're standing in front of a lamp, you might click on turn on and then click on the lamp. And what's happening is the game is constructing the sentence turn on lamp, which then causes the game to actually turn it on and light floods the room. You might be able to use the get verb and you might say get and then mouse over an object in the game world, say a dime. 
So you would say get dime and the game would get the dime. So rather than the text parser kind of interface where you had to kind of guess what verb commands the computer would recognize or what the nouns were that the individual objects on the screen might represent, in Maniac Mansion, everything is very visual. It is all very defined. You know exactly what you're doing. You know exactly what commands you're trying to make. And what commands the computer itself is going to understand. Now, that doesn't mean that if you issue a given command, you'll actually be able to do that with any object because there are certain things that don't make any sense. Like if you said open hamster, that probably doesn't make any sense. The computer still won't know what to do with that one. But you do at least know that the noun hamster and the verb open are part of the game's lexicon. As you make your way through the titular mansion, you'll come across a number of different objects to use, hotspots to interact with, and characters to run away from, or in some cases, befriend. There are a fair number of puzzles in the game, as is typical for adventure games, most of which involve using an item on some object in the game world, though there are also some light inventory manipulation puzzles here too. The most interesting thing about the puzzles is that a good portion of them are driven based on the team of characters you select at the beginning of the game, and here's where Maniac Mansion differs from many adventure games, both past and present. When you begin the game, you're able to create a team of three characters out of seven available selections, each of which, for the most part, have special skills that open up different puzzles and ultimately game endings as you play the game. Out of that list of seven characters, one of them, Dave, is required, so you really only have an option to select two of the remaining six characters to accompany Dave on his journey to save his girlfriend. So let's go through those characters real quick, just so that we all know what the roster is. So we have Dave, like we were just talking about. He is sort of the main character of the game, or at least he's really the reason that this adventure is happening in the first place. His girlfriend has been kidnapped by the inhabitants of the mansion, and he rounds up a few of his friends to help get her back. Other than being the driving force for going to the mansion in the first place, he really has no specific special skill set, so he's kind of useless. Bernard is a science kind of guy who has a knack for repairing pretty much anything and working with electronic equipment, so he does have a very specific path of puzzles and endings for the game. Razor and Sid are both musical types who can play pretty much any instrument, so certainly if there are musical puzzles, they would be the ones to have tackle those kinds of things. Wendy, by contrast, is a writer, and there is one path through the game that involves you working on a manuscript, and only Wendy can do that. Michael, by contrast, is a photographer who would actually be able to develop film in the game. There is a, a photography room with a red light in the game, in the mansion, and Michael is the only person who could effectively use that room and the equipment within it. And then you have Jeff. Jeff is, well, he's just Jeff. He's described as a surfer dude, and in case you didn't realize, there are literally no situations in this title where his surfing prowess could actually help you. There's pretty much no reason to ever pick him in a playthrough, since Dave already has the whole I have no useful skills thing covered. Anyway, while not every character is particularly useful, the fact that the player can actually build their own team, and the fact that the puzzles in the game and the endings you can achieve all change based on who you choose, makes Maniac Mansion incredibly unique in the realm of adventure games. And it's even more impressive that this was an early adventure title, not one created after the genre was better understood and had a more robust foundation of different experiences to draw upon. Gilbert's and the team's ambitions may have been a bit too high, and we'll talk about that, but for a game from 1987, it's definitely an impressive design. Shifting gears just a little bit, let's talk about the game's interface. This is the first implementation of the Scum engine, which was purely verb-driven. It's important to remember that around this time, interfaces for adventure games were, for the most part, purely text-driven, and oftentimes text-parser-driven, meaning you had to type commands into the game in order to make anything happen. Like we were talking about, Maniac Mansion would revolutionize that concept by including a list of commands on the screen for players to select from. In the original version of Maniac Mansion, you had 15 different possible commands, and just to go through them real quick, you could push, you could pull, you could give, you could open, you can close, you could read, you could walk to, you could pick up, you could issue a what is command, you could also select a new kid, you could unlock, use, turn on, turn off, and fix. So those 15 different verb phrases or verbs were the commands available in the original Maniac Mansion. Looking at the NES version, 
it streamlined that interface just a bit, going with 12 different possible commands, eliminating what is, unlock, and fix. Unlock and fix, even in the original version, were entirely unnecessary because you could simply use a key on a lock or tools on a broken item, and that would unlock or fix them respectively, so there was no reason to maintain separate verb commands for those actions. They were completely superfluous. The what is command, that one's an interesting one because it serves to show both Maniac Mansion's inspirations as well as its age. Like we had just mentioned, and we've talked about this a few times throughout this episode, Typical adventure games around this time used a text parser interface for entering commands. The concept of a mouse-driven interface was a fairly new thing. By default, if you moused over the game world, nothing would really happen. In other words, if you moused over a hotspot or an object in Maniac Mansion, at least the original version, there would be nothing on the screen that indicated you were hovering over a hotspot or object. The only way to know what was actually in the game world was to use the what is command, which effectively allowed the cursor to tell you what object, hotspot, or other potential interaction point you were hovering over. Nowadays, and even as far back as the early 90s, we take it for granted that simply mousing over an object will likely in some way show you that there's an object under your cursor. Maybe the text of the item is displayed somewhere on the screen or near your cursor, or maybe the item gets highlighted. Maybe the cursor itself changes shape. That sort of direct feedback has been commonplace in adventure games for the last 30 years. Only Maniac Mansion was created 36 years ago, and considering it evolved from the concept of text-driven adventure games, it wouldn't be uncommon for someone to type what is XXX, what is something, into the text parser to find out more about an item. And that translated directly into Maniac Mansion's interface. Ron Gilbert and the team didn't consider that the default cursor would simply perform the same function without needing to click an extra verb command. For what it's worth, though, later versions of the game, like the NES version, would streamline that interface to remove what is and simply make the cursor's default behavior act as though you always had what is selected. There are a couple of other oddities with the Scum Engine's original implementation that, once again, show that this was a foundational game but didn't necessarily have everything figured out just yet. For one, there was no way to simply look at objects or hotspots in the game world. For anyone used to playing adventure games, you likely realize that learning more about a game's world, its inhabitants, and its objects is one of the core aspects of playing an adventure game. And I know that when I play these titles, I try to devour every bit of available information. If a hotspot can be interacted with, you better believe I'm going to look at it to either hear or read what the item is all about. A lot of times, looking at things in adventure games simply provides some flavor text, but nowadays, it is an essential part of the adventure game experience. In Maniac Mansion, there's not really a way to get that flavor text in the game. There is no look at command, which I've got to say, felt a little strange. The read command can sometimes act as a proxy, but it can't be used for everything. I mean, it's not like you can read a key but in many games, you'd at least be able to look at it and get some sort of description. Maniac Mansion didn't really have that. The other part of the game that might feel odd to longtime adventure gamers is the fact that there is no dialogue system in the game at all, despite the game actually having characters to interact with. It's not like the characters don't speak, because they do. It's just that those interactions are more passive in a way meaning they simply say things to you as you get close to them, or they talk with you as a result of you doing something to them, like giving them an item they've been looking for. I know as I was playing the game, I wanted to be able to actually strike up a conversation with the characters in the game, or even have a dialogue between the other characters you as the player control. But unfortunately, that just wasn't in the cards for this game. Regardless of those limitations and design decisions, you can definitely see how future adventure games, and I mean the majority of adventure games, would take inspiration from Maniac Mansion. It is simply that important of an adventure game title. Before we go on, I do want to mention that for this particular podcast episode, I ended up playing the NES version of the game, simply because it was the first version I played when I was a kid, and I wanted to re-experience it. I have played the computer-based version of the game, as well as the fan-made remake released, so I guess many years ago at this point, but released not all that long ago. Uh, So as we talk through each of the upcoming sections, I'm looking at this from the perspective of Maniac Mansion as a holistic property. You can't really go wrong with any version of the game, other than perhaps the Famicom port, 
though honestly, I haven't played it myself, so I can only go off of what others have said for that one. Before we start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box. I love looking at how these companies marketed their titles and how they would try to get those titles into the hands of prospective buyers. A lot of times when we were shopping for games back in the late 80s, we didn't have, well, we certainly didn't have the internet or YouTube to look up gameplay videos. A lot of times we didn't even have magazines to look at as far as talking about articles or reviews before we buy something. Most of the time, our decision for whether to buy something was literally made on the spot, looking at the box, reading the back of the box, and seeing if it sounded cool. So, from Maniac Mansion, the back of the box, and this is the NES box, by the way. So the back of the box from Maniac Mansion says... Why is there a chainsaw in the kitchen and a nuclear reactor in the basement and disembodied tentacles hopping around? And why does that peculiar doctor keep going? <laughs> Strange things have been going on for years up at Dr. Fred's old mansion ever since that meteor landed just outside the house. But when a sweet young cheerleader named Sandy disappeared into the basement, boyfriend Dave knew it was time to take a look behind the good doctor's door. Your task is to help Dave choose a rescue team and guide them on the wildest, weirdest mission your NES system has ever seen. The storyline depends on the individual talents and quirks of the team members you select, and no matter how many times you play, the outcome is never quite the same. Sometimes it's puzzling, sometimes scary, sometimes downright funny, but it's always, always a challenge. So if you're looking for a comedy adventure that makes you think as hard as you laugh, get into Maniac Mansion today, and then try, just try, to get out. And then there are a few screenshots on the back of the box that show a couple of different scenes from the game itself, and I've got to say, I loved the back of the box. This is one of those boxes that I absolutely adore. I think it was so charmingly written. I feel like they were really trying to rope you in there and it just felt, I don't know, it felt like a warm hug reading this box. It wasn't just a bunch of technical mumbo jumbo or industry jargon. It was kind of telling you a story and that really fits in with the overall narrative and aesthetic of the game itself because adventure games a lot of what they're about is the story so i really appreciated the way they did this box this is probably one of my favorite boxes that we have looked at on this podcast so far it just it really spoke to me and i thought that whoever wrote that uh, copy that marketing copy for the box did an amazing job Anyway, let's move on and start talking about more of the specific aspects of the game. We are going to start by looking at the graphics. Overall, the graphics are nicely detailed, both from a character perspective as well as from an overall world standpoint. Now, granted, this is an adventure game from the late 80s, so you're not going to get a ton of bells and whistles, and many of the environments consist of solid colors with some artistic effects like shadows included. And those shadows, by the way, are just drawn on. It's not like there's an actual lighting system in the game. So if you're looking for the most technically advanced graphics, you're not going to find it here. And because the graphics predate the more commonly remembered pixel art style of the very late 80s into the 90s, there might be some individuals who look at the game and think, uh, that's just a bit too primitive. For anyone who wants a slightly more modernized version of the graphics, I would direct you to the fan remake, which looks great and still captures the essence of the original. Regardless, though, I personally believe the game looks really good, and despite its limitations, the artistic style at play helps to evoke a certain mood from each scene that fits perfectly within the game world. I also have to mention, by the way, that as a kid, I was absolutely terrified of Nurse Edna and Weird Ed, and any time I'd get caught by either of them, I recall feeling actual fear. Looking at it today, I honestly don't know why that would be, as they're really not particularly scary looking. I mention this just to say the character designs, while over the top, are definitely effective, and they were certainly effective for younger me, being scared of the game just a little bit, and certainly being scared of getting captured by any of the characters in the game. Moving on to the sound and music. This, like we were talking about, is one of the biggest differences between various versions of the game. 
because the original computer platform-based versions of the title didn't have any music included except for the title theme, which I will say definitely creates a bit of a different vibe, almost in some ways a bit spookier. The NES version, by contrast, has a full soundtrack with different themes for each character and special cutscene interlude music, and I've got to say, it mostly works. For me, there's a ton of nostalgia here, because like I said, I played Maniac Mansion on the NES as a kid, so I remember the music vividly in my head. If I divorce myself from the nostalgia, though, I still believe the music is mostly a positive ad, though it kind of fell into the trap of many NES games, in that there was a commonly held belief that music had to be playing constantly in order to engage the player. For a typical NES game with platforming or action, that might make perfect sense, and a lot of times the music in a title might change as you progress through the game. For a game like Maniac Mansion, though, where you might end up spending hours playing while only hearing one of three different musical pieces for most of that time, with those three pieces being the different themes for your selected characters, the music can start to get just a smidge old. It's still good, but I think the game would have been better served by having different musical themes for different sections of the mansion, as opposed to tying the theme to the character. I feel like that would have added some additional diversity to the auditory experience. But once again, I have to remember we're talking about a game from 1987, an audio that has to fit within the restrictions of the NES sound system. With that context, I think the audio was fine, though from a more modern framework, I think there were some opportunities for improvement. Now, as far as sound effects go, there really weren't all that many, but what was there sounded pretty darn good, and almost sounded like they were recorded audio, which I suppose might have been the case, but I'd seriously doubt it given NES cartridge size limitations. In particular, I'm thinking about the doorbell noise sound, which sounded pretty accurately like a real doorbell, though it very well could have been synthesized by the NES sound chip. Regardless, for the most part, in the versions in which it existed, the music and sound effects mostly worked. They just got a bit tiresome after a while. Moving on to the narrative and story, we've talked a bit about the core premise behind the game already, but just to recap, you play as Dave, and his girlfriend Sandy has been kidnapped by the weird Edison family who just so happened to live in a mansion on top of a hill. Dave gathers several of his friends to break into the mansion to save his girlfriend from the clutches of the Edisons, not realizing that the reason the Edisons are so crazy is because of a meteor that had crashed to Earth 20 years ago and has been controlling the Edisons' minds. Dave and his friends set out to rescue Sandy, and along the way they encounter various members of the Edison family, including a couple of large tentacles, don't ask, all in the hopes of saving the girl while perhaps saving the Edison family in the process. So I've got to say, this is a pretty zany off-the-wall story, but it really works. I enjoyed the setup and the characters, and I thought the way everything played out made sense within the context of the game's world. I also enjoyed the cutscenes that would play, seemingly at random, as you were playing the game, which served to provide additional context to each character's motivations and backstories, at least to a degree. That being said, this is not a super deep story, and the lack of any sort of dialogue system pretty much guarantees that the focus here is more on exploration and puzzles as opposed to game and world lore and narrative delivery. It's not that the story is bad, it's just that it's light, and as an adventure game, I believe there are some general expectations for what people want to see in an adventure title. One of the major elements from my standpoint is the narrative, and here, I do believe it was a bit lighter than what modern audiences will appreciate. There's still goodness here, it's just that I would have personally wanted more. Moving on to the playability and controls, we've already talked about the general controls for the game and how the scum engine works, so I'm not going to belabor the point here. But I will say that controlling the game using an NES controller is not nearly as fun as using a mouse. The NES version basically lets the D-pad control the cursor, and having to move the cursor around fairly slowly to select verb commands and objects can be a bit cumbersome, and it's also a fair amount less accurate than mouse-driven controls. You do get used to it pretty quickly, but from a control perspective, I believe the computer-based versions have the NES version beat, even with the slightly less streamlined verb command list. That being said, the game remains as playable as any more modern adventure title though as an early genre trailblazer, there are some aspects of the experience that I think might frustrate some players. For one, 
despite the development's team desire to avoid dead-end states and player death, there's actually an awful lot of ways you can die in the game, and there are plenty of ways to get yourself into an unwinnable situation. Now, as it pertains to character death, you kind of have to go out of your way to die, so it's not like Maniac Mansion is like older Sierra titles in that regard. But as far as dead-end situations, this is where we see the ambitions of the original design not really coming fully to fruition. By tying a number of puzzles to specific characters and their special abilities, you have a situation where you are entirely dependent on those characters to win the game. And there are certain actions you can take in-game that might result in you losing a necessary item for one of those characters, which would then make the game unwinnable with that character. So you might say, that's okay, we've got two other characters to potentially win the game with. The thing is, though, not really, because Dave can't win the game himself, and there are several characters that either have their skills copied, like Razor and Sid, or are as useless as Dave, like Jeff. If you were a first-time player, you might pick a team that really only has one winnable path, and you might accidentally do something fairly innocuous, like opening an envelope, only to discover that you can no longer win the game. Like I said, these situations aren't nearly as egregious as many Sierra titles from the same time, but they do warrant some discussion, especially because one of the overall goals of Ron Gilbert and his team was to avoid the kinds of situations Sierra games were infamous for. They didn't quite hit that mark. Regardless, though, the game is fun to play. It's just that for the uninitiated, there might be some frustration that could potentially result in having to restart the game. Overall, how did it feel to play Maniac Mansion? So playing Maniac Mansion feels like taking a step back in time. It is beyond question a vintage gaming experience. That being said, it still feels good to play even today. It's just that it's not quite as smooth as what many adventure gamers will expect. I don't mean this as a specific knock against the title, because I believe it deserves a ton of respect and kudos for what it did and when it did it. This is one of the grandparents of the adventure game genre, and it would become so well-loved in later years that every LucasArts adventure title, or nearly every LucasArts adventure title after it, would inherit from it. This was the origin of every adventure title that LucasArts would work on afterwards. It is a historical, significant release. It's just a bit rough around the edges in comparison to the titles that would follow. I believe you have to be in the right frame of mind to truly enjoy Maniac Mansion to its fullest. There is a lot of goodness here, like the puzzles and the multi-character gameplay. But there are also a lot of elements that have aged a bit, or just add a bit more friction than what gamers are used to today. If you're looking for a vintage adventure kind of experience, you'll absolutely have a good time here. If you're looking for an experience that better aligns with what many consider to be the classic era of adventure gaming, though, you might hit a couple snags, since this game set the foundation for that classic era, but also predates many of the innovations that made the classic era awesome to experience. So overall, what is our verdict on Maniac Mansion? You've probably guessed by this point, but Maniac Mansion does show its age a bit. But you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something you have to be aware of before you play it. I truly believe that the good outweighs the aged elements of the game, but I also don't think I can unequivocally recommend it to all gamers, or even all adventure gamers. Because of that, I believe Maniac Mansion deserves a spot as one of our golden oldies. It's one of the most impactful releases in adventure game history, and it was an early indicator that Lucasfilm, and eventually LucasArts, would become one of the titans of the adventure game genre. Is it perfect? No. Does it feel modern or even classic? No, not particularly, and that's why I've been trying to use the word vintage wherever possible, to help distinguish Maniac Mansion from the era in which adventure games were at their height. Regardless, though, Maniac Mansion remains a fun gaming experience, and one that certainly deserves respect, and for those reasons, it definitely earns its spot as the newest member of our Golden Oldies.
That was our episode on Maniac Mansion. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt, and we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to keep in touch with the podcast community as well as myself. We're out there literally every day having a ton of discussions. It is a great place to be. And once again, like I mentioned earlier, we do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. Our second Patreon-exclusive podcast comes out this upcoming Wednesday, and I've been throwing some blog posts out there, just trying to put some extra stuff out there for anybody who does want to contribute to the show. So if you are interested, that is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Sonic the Hedgehog. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize that you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services. And if you would, I would love it if you could leave a review on your podcast service of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to harvest a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what this is really all about is trying to deliver the best possible podcast that I can. And the only way to do that is to get feedback from the community to make sure that we are delivering the content that everybody wants to listen to. We get new listeners literally every day, which is awesome. I want to make sure that this is the best podcast for everybody and that everybody is having a good time. So please feel free to leave the review or if you don't want to leave a review, just shoot me a note. and Let me know what's working, what isn't working, what you like, what you think could be improved upon. I am definitely interested in hearing what you all think. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Sonic the Hedgehog. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.